John 4.43. After the two days, he departed from Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Folks, would you join me in prayer? This is the most important time of the week for you. It's the time when God is going to be addressing you. I want to ask for prayer for myself that I would be able to focus and be able to deliver the word of God to you. Uh, Join with me in prayer that we can figure out why this buzzing is occurring. Because it wasn't occurring earlier. So, sound team, you have my, pre- we have my privilege and my uh, permission to figure out why that's buzzing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's pray, guys. Uh, there, would be, there would be opposition to the word of God. Let's focus that we would hear the word of God and that it would change our lives. Father, thank you for the opportunity to pray. Lord, I just ask even this morning on Mother's Day that, Lord, we would hear your word. Lord, that your word would affect us. Lord, that you would take away the distractions. Lord, I I just pray for the buzzing, that we could figure out why this this system buzzes during the, the message and doesn't any other time. Father, help us. We are we are poor, oftentimes ignorant, and uh we need your help. So give us your help this morning, Lord. Lord, bless my friends. Oh, Father, bless my friends, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. According to the creditcard.com website, the average outstanding credit card debt for households in 2008 was $10,679. Now, this puts the average yearly interest that people spend on credit cards at two thousand dollars in 2008 banks absorbed about 55 billion dollars in credit card defaults and next year they're looking at that figure going up to 65 billion dollars just in bank defaults we love our credit cards don't we folks it's instant access to whatever we want whenever we want it on our terms But then, 30 days later, 
we're jolted back to reality when we receive the bill and discover the bank's terms. And we carry this credit card mentality into our relationship with God. We assume access to God that is as swift and certain as the swipe of a credit card. Sort of a spiritual purchase without waiting and with little thought. We approach God as consumers who can gain access to the sacred on our terms, in our time, in our own way, for our own benefit. But, oh, friends, this passage this morning, this passage this morning, it's like an advance bill. Think of it as getting the bill right when you're about to make the purchase. It's like an advance bill communicating God's terms. You see, the reality of the matter is that God cannot be had on your terms, in your time, in your own way, in for your own benefit. He can only be had on his terms, in his time, in his way, and for his glory. Guys, listen. By nature, by nature, we all want to live our lives on our own terms. Or should I say by fallen nature? Because our parents, Adam and Eve, had paradise, but they were not satisfied with paradise on God's terms. They had to have paradise on their terms. So they reached out and they took the one thing that God said they couldn't take. And broke God's terms. And since that day, we have experienced sin and suffering, disease, destruction, and death, both physically and spiritually. And so God's message today to us is that, listen, my people, you have a propensity to displace God from the center of your life and to place yourself in the center of your life. You have a propensity to want to approach God on your terms rather than on God's terms. And that propensity leads to suffering, destruction, death, despair, And God wants to get your attention this morning. God wants to speak to you about the remedy. And the remedy, my friends, the remedy is to come to Jesus Christ on his terms. The remedy is to come to Jesus Christ on his terms. And stop trying to come to him on our own terms. You see, that's what happens. We not only want to live our lives on our own terms, but we want to come to God on our own terms. So as we're living our lives on our own terms, as we're charging the credit card, charging the credit card, making purchases that our budget cannot sustain, and then when the bill comes, when the terms come in, we cry out to God. Or we're driving the car down the street on our own terms and we drive into a ditch. Suddenly, what do we want to do? We want to say to our heavenly daddy, excuse me, can I borrow the family credit card? Because I've got a real problem here. Can I just make a charge? 
So we run into God's presence. We want to make a charge and run out. And God says, not so fast, my friend. It doesn't work that way. And that's what this message speaks. And that's what this message speaks to us. And so I pray that you would hear that, that you would have ears to hear. God wants to offer you his terms this morning, my friend. See, the question suddenly becomes a command. And if you'll look in your notes, here's the command. Come to Jesus on his terms, not on your terms. Don't you see? That's what it means in Scripture when Jesus said, repent. When Jesus came to this earth, what was the first thing that he said? Repent. What have we studied that Jesus did, that John the Baptist did? They did what? They baptized. Do you realize that baptism is the one sign for a Christian that he is converted that he's a Christian, it's not raising your hand, it's not signing a card, it's being baptized. So Jesus, God comes, when God came into history, he said, I'm here, here's my kingdom, here are my terms. You come to me on my terms. But from the beginning of time till the day Jesus comes back, you know what's in our hearts? I'll come to you, God, but I want it on my terms. I want it on my terms. And this morning, the Lord is speaking to you. Accept God's terms and give up your own terms as you come to Jesus. Now, God wants to begin this conversation with us about coming to Jesus on his terms and not our own. He wants to begin this conversation with us this morning by way of contrast. And if you'll read there in your notes, you'll notice that it says the following. Those who come to Jesus on his terms, that is to say Jesus' terms, are contrasted with those who come to Jesus on their own terms. So let's look at verses 43 through 45, where God contrasts the attitude of the Samaritans, who were people that came to Jesus on Jesus' terms, with that of the Galileans, who were people that came to Jesus on their own terms. And reading from the text, John 4, 43 to 45, after two days he departed from Galilee, he being Jesus there. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. Now, what do we see in verse 43? In verse 43, it says, Jesus departed for Galilee. We know from the previous messages that we heard that to depart from Galilee, he had to depart from a place called Samaria, actually a little village called Sychar. And in Sychar, we learned last week, a bunch of Samaritans came to Jesus on Jesus' terms. That's that, that number one there in your notes. We're going to contrast now the first group that came to Jesus on Jesus' terms. The Samaritans came to Jesus on Jesus' terms. Now, what tells us that? Well, if you have your Bibles open, look at verse 39 of John chapter 4. Corey did a great job preaching this last week. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, that is Jesus, because of the woman's testimony. 
He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. Now listen carefully, church. This is the first time someone other than Jesus is going to make this confession in Scripture. First time. And listen to what they say. Verse 42. We, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. You know what is curious about this? The Samaritans, they weren't Jesus' people. They weren't his hometown. The Samaritans, if you remember from last week, were a bunch of half-breeds. They weren't fully Jewish. They weren't fully Gentile. They were despised. They were the low life. And yet, God wants to speak to you this morning about how you come to Jesus by first bringing to your attention a bunch of half-breeds and despised people who came to Jesus on Jesus' terms, not their own terms. And that's the Samaritans. That's how we need to come to Jesus. On his terms and not our own terms. They came to him and said, you're the savior of the world. Now let's contrast the Samaritans, point number two there in your notes, with the Jews. The Jews, on the other hand, came to Jesus on their own terms. On their own terms. Look at verse 44. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now, in in verse 44, you have a very curious statement. You have Jesus actually his thoughts being revealed, and his thoughts are this. A prophet has no honor in his own hometown. What that means is, Jesus is stating this. My hometown is all of Israel. It's not Samaria. Now remember, where was Jesus born? In Judea, in southern Israel, in a place called Bethlehem, because he was of the tribe of Judah. Where did Jesus grow up? In northern Israel. In Galilee, in a place called Nazareth. So Jesus' hometown was all of Israel. And yet, all of Israel is going to reject Jesus. One of the first messages that we preached to you was from John 1. And in verse 11, it states that very clearly. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Did not receive him. So you ask me the question, okay, Al, I understand verse 44 says that, but it sure looks like in verse 45 that they do receive him. I mean, in verse 44, it says that a prophet is without honor in his own hometown, but then in verse 45, I mean, like his real hometown homeboys in Galilee, northern Israel, says that they welcome him. Doesn't it say that? Let's read it again, verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Friend, listen to me. This is the key to the message. Wake up right now. Pay attention. God's speaking to you. See God's finger pointing from behind my head right at you. Here's the subtlety. What kind of welcome did they welcome Jesus with? 
And is it the kind of welcome that honors him as God? Because verse 44 says, a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. His own hometown, pal, is all of Israel. So Galilee cannot welcome him and honor him in the same way. Or scripture is not true. All right. Well, let's look and see. Let's study scripture together, shall we? By the illumination of the Holy Spirit. What kind of welcome did the Galileans give him? They gave him the exact same kind of welcome that the crowds in Jerusalem gave him. Turn to John 2, 23. Grab your Bibles. If you don't have one, run as fast as you can back there to JP. And JP, give him a Bible. Give it to him for free. They can even keep it and take it home. John 2, 23. This is chin-chilling, spine-tingling, exciting stuff. This is like spiritual CSI. Okay? Yeah. Now, yeah. now I got some of you. It's not quite 24, but it's spiritual CSI, okay? Jack Bauer hasn't showed up, showed up yet, but we're going to investigate. So what kind of welcome did the Galileans give Jesus? Well, this is the kind of welcome they gave Jesus. Look at John 2, 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Hey, great, they're believing in Jesus, right? Wait a minute. Look at verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. If you go back to our passage today, it even says that the Galileans were in Jerusalem during the Passover feast. Do you see that in verse 45? It says that, that they, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done where? In Jerusalem. For they had what? Gone to the feast. The very same crowd that is described in 2.23 to 25 is the same crowd that's now went back home to Galilee. They walked back home after the Passover feast. It's the same group of people. And that group of people, my friends, is you and me. It's you and me. It's the people that are overly impressed with what Jesus can do for them and his miracles and his signs and his wonders. It's the people that have religious clothing on, but the center of their universe is themselves. The whole center of their entire universe is themselves, and it's a small universe. And therefore, when they welcome Jesus, you know how they welcome Jesus? Hey, Jesus, miracle worker, pull her out of the ditch. Enricher of my finances, prosperer of my body and soul. Hey, Jesus, who fixes all the mistakes that I make, come on down and let me add you to my little world. Jesus, would you come and fix my little world? Hey, Jesus, I welcome you. Hey, there's Jesus. Woo, Jesus. <laughs> and listen, it was in Galilee. It was in Cana, right? What do you think they're thinking? Dude, the guy that last month turned 180 gallons of water into wine. He's back in town. Party down. Let's go. And you know what they've done? They have mocked God, which is what some of you are doing right now. Because what you say is, God, I'll remain in the center of my universe. Thank you very much. But I'll pick and choose from you to go ahead and help me out a little bit. 
Would you just add to my life? Would you solve my little relational difficulties? Lord, would you give me a little key to life? Five keys to a better life. Six keys to have a successful business. Four keys to get my wife to stop yelling. I mean, I mean, to get my, you know, family in order. Your laughter betrays some of you guys, okay? You should not laugh quite that hard. Jesus, would you come to my universe and be a little orbiting star way out there, and every once in a while when I need you, maybe on Sunday morning, Wednesday night, I'll ask you for some of your advice. You are, after all, the consultant. And he's saying, I'm not the consultant. I'm the boss. Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. You cannot have a part of Jesus or you will have none of Jesus. This is offensive to the American psyche. It is offensive to you and me. But it is true. It is Bible. Look what Jesus says to someone who comes to him with a very big need. Let's skip down to verse 46. This is point three in your notes. The official initially came to Jesus on his own terms. And by the way, at this point, I want you to, I want you to, to kind of sidle up right next to this official. And you, you and I are this official. He's probably an official in the court of Herod. Herod was the king or the tetrarch of this northern area of Galilee. Okay, King Herod. Jesus, three years later, was going to stand before Herod on trial. He's probably a wealthy man. He probably has a lot of servants. He probably has a lot of authority. He lives... He, man, this is my kind of guy. He lives right on the water. Okay, this is where I would be living. He lives right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's probably got a nice villa. Doesn't need any air conditioning. Opens his windows during the day. He's got a nice breeze. Probably has a hammock, shorts, flip-flops, T-shirt. I'm out of here. <laughs> Don't worry. Be happy, man. That's this guy. Only he's got one problem. Yeah, yeah. His little world just came crashing in on the boy. You know, he had life on his terms. He had paradise, and suddenly, suddenly paradise got interrupted. Let's read what happened to this man. Verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, the he there is Jesus, where he had made the water into wine, 180 gallons worth, thank you very much. And at Capernaum, which was about 15 miles away on the seashore in, in Galilee, off the Sea of Galilee, there was an official whose son was ill. There goes your no-hitter right there. There goes your perfect little world. Something happened that you can't control. Your son is now ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him. So he walks. He walks eight hours from the Sea of Galilee up because the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. He walks up the hills. It's hot. It's sweaty. He's walking eight hours, and he's walking with a purpose, and he's thinking, I've got to reach this miracle man, this miracle man who can heal my son. Verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him, now listen to what the guy asked him. Jesus, I'm coming to you on my terms. All right, catch this. This is what he asked him. Would you come down and heal my son? For he's at the point of death. Friends, you would think that Jesus would immediately respond because after all, isn't God here just to meet our needs? No, he's not. Ouch. But oh, hear God say that to you. 
Because if you're asking God to dance for you, you got it wrong. You dance for God. Oh, hear that. Because one day the bill's coming. I want you to hear it now before the bill comes. I want you to hear it now before you pull out the credit card and start charging things. What does Jesus say to this man? Look at verse 48. This makes no sense. What is wrong with you, Jesus? Didn't you go to the church growth seminar? What's wrong with you, Jesus? Didn't you go to the sensitivity training for messiahs? You don't say this to a man whose son is dying? You crazy? Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Stunned silence. Miracle man does not come through. Headlines, Miami Herald. (laughs) He came through a couple of months ago, 180 gallons of wine. Yeah. Can you believe how insensitive Jesus was? Yes. Yes. Can we analyze Jesus' words? Yes. I'll tell you what there, Phil. I think that was a bad move. That was a bad call, man. What's wrong with him? He might get sued. You can't say that. That's insensitive. Why did Jesus say this? Here's why. Because Jesus knew that this man's greatest need was not the physical healing of his dying son, but the spiritual healing of his dying soul and the soul of his son. He knew that what was at stake was their eternal life. And this man, this man came to Jesus with the same mentality that we come to Jesus with. And that is this, Lord, give me what I want, but I don't want to worship you. He said, hey, Jesus, come here. My son's dying. Come with me to heal him. I don't care who you are. I just know what you can do. Come on, let's go. (laughs) Man, you can't play with God. He may be merciful to you and heal. We're going to see that in a moment. He's not going to follow you anywhere. You understand that? And if you think that you're leading God, then what you're leading is a, is a creation of God in your own mind. And it's a religious fantasy. Just get in your car and drive up to Disney because that's where he lives. doesn't live in Miami. Disney, you know, Orlando is Disney World. Woo-hoo, you know, no reality at all. Talk about credit cards. Lots of charges. No reality. Reality is when you get back to Miami and get the bill 30 days. <gasps> what? cost that much for a soda no you had 22 (laughs) oh friend listen to me you cannot have paradise on your terms that's why jesus said this to him do you hear that i'm speaking that to every person in this room I'm speaking that on the authority of Jesus Christ. I'm speaking that to the person that's been the Christian the longest, who's been following the Lord the strongest. I'm speaking that to myself, not that I'm that person. There's some of you far more spiritual than I am. But we all drift into that, don't we? Give me paradise, Lord. I just don't want your terms. Lord, meet my needs, you great miracle worker, but I don't really want to worship you. I'm happy worshiping me. I'm really happy with me at the center of my universe. Jesus, would you come bless my universe? And you know what he says to us? This is what he says to us. Unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. What Jesus detected in this official was a faith that desires a cure, but does not really trust Christ. Oh, that's a good one. Write that one down. 
It's not original to me. That's D.A. Carson. A faith that desires a cure, but does not desire to trust Christ. Are you here this morning to get a cure for your marriage? And it doesn't really matter to you whether Christ is involved or not. Are you here to get a cure for your body, to get a cure for your finances, to get a cure for your little damaged psyche, your emotional well-being, your bank account? But you don't want to trust Christ, do you? You want the cure, but you don't really want Christ. Do I have to have Christ too? Just cure my son, man. Go off, go back off to doing your deal. And God says, no, we're not going to play that game. We're not going to play that game. And so Jesus answers him the way he did. Jesus demands that we take him at his word, friends, or we not take him at all. As I said earlier, he is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. You cannot just come to him and say, pull me out of this ditch that I got myself into and I'll be on my way, thank you very much. That's idolatry. Jesus won't allow it. This, this official failed to honor Jesus. He was using Jesus. We use Jesus every time we do the same thing. And you know what? God wants to bring us back to the contrast of the Samaritans in chapter 4, verses 1 to 42. They speak to us. The unclean, half-breed Samaritans speak to us. They say loud and clear, he's the savior of the world. You need a lot more than just a physical healing. You need a spiritual savior. That's what's at stake this morning, friends. God's glory, God's name, firstly, and your eternal destination, secondly. So will you come to him on his terms, or will you continue to come to him on your own terms? Fourth point. Fourth point. The official changed his approach and came to Jesus on Jesus' terms. I believe that is what the, this official did, and I believe that he humbled himself, and I believe he exhibited faith. And that faith is seen in verses 49 to 50. Read with me. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. So Jesus immediately says to him, Unless you see, you won't believe. Guy stunned. What do you say at that point? He just, he just reiterates, Please, come down before my child dies. And then verse 50 is the key here. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Now, I want you to write something down. Underneath that point four, write down this passage. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 23. Don't look at it now. Study it later. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 23. Jesus, when he said this statement, go, your son will live, was consciously making an allusion to a messianic prophecy, a messianic picture in the Old Testament when Elijah, a prophet, brought the dead son of a a widow in Zarephath back to life. And in so doing... He was signing, he was pointing to the Messiah. Jesus very intentionally says these exact same words to this official. And in doing so, what he says to this guy is, I'm Messiah. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm not not only living water, which is what he told the woman in Samaria, but I am life. And you know what the guy did? He obeyed him. He obeyed him. Now, put yourself in this guy's shoes. For a moment. 
He walks eight hours. He's a big deal. He's used to people jumping at his command. He is a man of influence and power and money. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, come with me to Capernaum and heal my son. And implicit in that is, I'll give you riches. You'll become even more famous. And Jesus says, I'm not playing that game. The guy says, oh, come before my son dies. And Jesus says, your son's going to live. Go. You know what the guy did? He obeyed Jesus. He obeyed Jesus. You want me to tell you whether you're really believing Jesus and honoring Jesus for who he is rather than for what he can do for you? You'll obey him. In a moment, we're going to get to that. But you'll obey him. You'll obey him because he's going to give you the power to obey him. You'll obey him because he is God and he is Messiah. and He is your Savior. But you'll obey him. That guy walks up to Jesus, stood in line, asked Jesus. Jesus said, no. The guy says, I'm coming to you on my terms. Come with me back to Capernaum. He says, no, I'm going to give myself to you on my terms. And the guy says, okay, I believe. That's what verse 50 says. And he turned around and he walked away. Friends, he walked away with a broken heart, with a son that is dying. It was an eight-hour walk. Later, we're going to find out that this was spoken to him about one in the afternoon. Back then, you didn't travel at night. It was too dangerous. So somewhere at nightfall, this guy has to find a hotel room between Cana and Capernaum. And all night long, I can just hear him saying, your son will live. I'm going to remember what this man told me. Your son will live. And he's going to sleep. He maybe didn't sleep very well that night. He's tossing back and forth. Oh, my son will live. My son will live. My son will live. I don't see my son living. I don't know if he's alive, but I believe this man's word. Listen to me. He came to Jesus. He did not see the wonder that he was looking for, but he, le- he believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And that man represents you and me. Because we don't yet see the wonders we're believing him for, do we? We don't yet see heaven that we're living for. We don't live for this little earth. We don't yet see his kingdom totally come in power. But we believe his word. And we're like this man, this official. And we toss back and forth. I believe he said my son will live. I believe. And then the next morning, he gets up. And let's look at the narrative. What happens? Verse 51. John 4:51. This is the next morning now. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. They said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, which is one o'clock in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. Can you imagine being that guy? Can you imagine he's walking down from the, the high country of Cana down to the ocean side on the Sea of Galilee of Capernaum? And he gets to a place called the Plain of Gennesaret. And all of a sudden, because he's a really rich guy, he sees a ton of servants coming out to him in their SUVs. <laughs> or whatever an SUV was back then. Because this was a rich dude. It's a powerful dude. What do you think he's thinking? Something very important and urgent has happened. But as he sees the dust of the SUVs flying off the wheels, he doesn't yet know, is it that my son died? 
or that he's alive. But he believed. And they jump, they pull up and they jump out of the SUVs and they say, Master, he's recovered. Now, why do I say this guy is saved? Because what's the first question he asked them? What's he thinking? Is he thinking, great, who cares about the guy who just said he was healed? I don't care about him. He's thinking about Jesus because what does he ask them? Hey, guys, by the way, at what time did he recover? And they said, one o'clock yesterday. And I could just, the guy, let me tell you something. The guy, I bet you, fell on his face. And there was a, a river of tears flowing in the desert that day. He's sobbing. He's saying, that's the exact hour that my master told me my son would live. And he believed, and his whole household believed. And back then, when your whole household believed, that was everybody. Servants, children, children of your servants. There might have been hundreds of people believe. There was revival. There was revival that broke out. Jesus Christ came to a man, and that man received Jesus Christ on Christ's terms, not on his own terms. And there was revival on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Will you believe and will you obey so that there's revival in your life, in this church, in this city? That's what is at stake here. It's not about your little world, pal. It's about God's word, God's name. Will you believe and honor him or will you disbelieve and dishonor him? Will you receive him as who he is or do you just still want him for what he can do for you? Now, what does that look like? What does that look like? Let me tell you what it looks like, friend. Application point. It looks like obeying him. It looks like obeying him. Jesus, Jesus reached out and brought a dying boy to life. Some of you are on the brink of death. The only difference is you don't know it. Oh, may God show you. The same Jesus that turned 180 gallons of water into wine and thus changed the whole purification laws of Israel and said it's no longer through your little symbols, your own little self-effort to be right with God, but it's through me and it's going to be my blood, which the wine represents, which is going to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and make you acceptable to God. The same Jesus that did that and brought messianic hope of a banquet to come is the same Jesus who rescued this boy from the brink of death and wants to rescue you from the brink of spiritual death. But we must obey him. We must obey him. We must come to terms with what he says we have to do. We must come to grips with his terms. We must run to him as savior and obey him as Lord. We must want him for not only what he can do, but who he is. We must want paradise on his terms. So what does that look like? Well, I prayed about this. I realized that for some of you, it's going to be beyond this, and God will show you what it is. But I just felt the Lord highlight five areas that you need to come to terms with God's commands.
You must come to grips with Jesus' terms. Now, for some of you, and I I don't know everyone in this room, it's going to start with salvation. You just need to repent and come to him as Savior and Lord, period. But for many of us, it's going to be coming to Jesus and accepting Jesus' terms for purity, my friends. Some of you right now are in relationships that you shouldn't be in. You're viewing things that you shouldn't view. You are doing things you shouldn't do. You need to come to terms with God's command. You need to hear Jesus' terms for purity. I beg you to do it. That is God's command to you. And let me just say, what are his terms? Oh, his terms are gracious. You know what his terms are? If you will bow down and confess your sins, I am faithful and righteous to forgive your sins. But if you stay upright with a stiff neck and say, I have no sin, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'll come to Jesus as my Savior, but I'll come on my own terms. I'll remain immoral. He will break you. The bill's coming. It's got a heavy, heavy payment. You can't pay it. Oh, come to grips with his terms concerning purity, friend. Next, some of us need to come to Jesus' terms for forgiveness. There are some here this morning that are coming to God and say, I'll come to you, God, but on my terms, I will never forgive her. I will never forgive him. You don't understand, God. And Jesus is saying to you, you must accept my terms if you want to come to me. My terms are forgive because you've been forgiven much. Just feel led to give you a couple of scriptures. On Jesus' terms for purity, just jot down 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. These aren't in your notes, but just jot these down. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. And on forgiveness, there are so many. But jot this one down. Colossians chapter 3. I believe it's verse 12. If not, it'll be right around verse 12. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Some of you, dear friends, you need to come and accept Jesus' terms for faith. Some need to obey God in this area of faith. This is mine, dear friends. This is mine. If you find yourself complaining about life, angry, grumpy, sullen, never happy, no one can ever do enough for you, life is just a real downer. Can I challenge you? You're coming to God on your own terms because the Bible says that the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Bible says that we should rejoice always. Just the scripture that comes to mind here is Matthew 6 at the end of that chapter, verse 22 to the end of the chapter. It talks about anxiety. It talks about fear. God's saying to you, come to me on my terms. I felt this one was appropriate. Some of you need to come to Jesus with his terms of giving. 
You need to obey God to tithe. Now, if you're a guest this morning, this isn't for you. Thank you for coming. You need to stop using God to get money and then say, I'll take care of that money the way I see fit, God. God is saying, have faith. This Matthew 6 is also for you. Also, Malachi speaks of tithing. You need, to, you need to come to grips with Jesus' terms when it comes to giving. And finally, so many of us need to come to grips with Jesus' terms for the family. Husbands, we need to come to grips with Jesus' terms for loving our wives, even when they're not acting in a lovely fashion. Wives, you need to come to grips with Jesus' terms to submit to your husbands and respect them, even when they're not acting in a respectable way. Ephesians 5 is a good one here. Ephesians 5. Children, you need to come to grips with God's terms for you to honor your parents. That's the fifth commandment, to honor your parents. And parents, you need to come to grips with God's terms for you to not exasperate and anger your children. A good place to go for both children and parents is Ephesians chapter 6, the first couple of verses. Dear friends, right now, we're going to come to Jesus in a very specific way. Ushers, would you please take your posts? Worship team, would you please come up and join me? Friends, we have an opportunity right now to come to Jesus in celebrating the sacrament of Holy Communion. My question to you this morning is this. Will you come to Jesus on your terms or will you come to Jesus on his terms? What are his terms, you're asking me? Well, they're very simple. Here are Jesus' terms. First of all, He's the Savior of the world. So he demands that we come to him aware of our sin and need for a Savior. Far more aware of our sin than of what others have done to us or even our own needs. We're to come to Jesus aware that we are selfish creatures wired to be our own gods and we need to come ready to repent. If we do, if we humble ourselves, bow our lives, oh friends, he will bless us. Our son will live Our souls will live. His terms are many of the things that I just described. Will you come ready? Will you come ready? Ushers, would you please come on down? In the Gospel of John, John the Baptist said the following words, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Samaritans said, we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Do you know that? Are you welcoming him this morning for who he is? Or are you just playing religious games and are here to get what he can give you without any commitment? He just won't play that game with you. He demands it all or nothing. Yeah, with Jesus, it's all or nothing. With Jesus, it's all or nothing. But if you give him all, he'll give you what you could never gain for yourself. And that is a right standing with God, true peace, true joy. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, dear friends, on that night, he took the bread 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In a moment, I'm going to pray. If you don't know the Lord, if you haven't welcomed him into your life as Savior and Lord, don't take this communion. It's not for you. You don't have that privilege. But you know what? You can get that privilege right now by bowing your life, giving up the throne of your life, and allowing God to take what's rightfully his. His seat in your life is the throne. Your seat is kneeling at his feet. If you do that in a moment, by all means, receive this. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the elements. I thank you that you initiated this sacrament to remind us of your sacrifice. If there's anyone in this room that is bowing their heart right now and saying, Lord, forgive me for living as the Lord and God of my own life, of trying to use you and mock you, I repent and I turn to you. Help me, God. Lord, that you would fill their lives now with your spirit, your life, your grace. Lord, for the rest of us, I just pray that you would remind us of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.